The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. muggy autumn afternoon. We gathered around the television as a family and listened to the weatherman as he told us what the five-day forecast had in store. Would this tropical storm that grew in strength in the Bahamas mature into a full-fledged hurricane? Would it make landfall and take aim for our New England neighborhood? With the unpredictability of hurricanes, we began to prepare for the worst. Everyone in our family started collecting the supplies for a healthy stretch of indoor camping. We gathered candles and board games. We checked the batteries in our flashlights and pulled out the Chronicles of Narnia, all seven books, off the shelf. In my 10-year-old mind, we had collected all the necessary supplies. And then, before long, Hurricane Bob arrived. The trees around our home groaned under the gale-force wind and needle-like rain traveling well beyond 100 miles an hour. We hunkered down under our blankets together for the long haul. Bob did his worst for the better part of a day, and for the most part, we escaped unscathed. But the same thing could not be said for the power company. The Category 2 hurricane wreaked havoc with trees and power lines, and as a result, it took over four days for the power in our neighborhood to be restored. The first night after the hurricane was disorienting. The house I lived in for five years looked different by candlelight. Even though I could usually walk through the rooms using muscle memory, the limited light of my single candle allowed more shadows than I was used to and certainly more than I was comfortable with as a 10-year-old. In that moment, I realized how important light was and how much I missed it. Nothing other than the light had changed in my environment, and yet it made me tentative in my movements and fearful. Sure, I missed the convenience of a light switch, but more than that, I missed the clarity that true light makes possible. Good morning. My name is Danny, and I'm one of the pastors and elders in this community, and I'm grateful to be sharing with you this morning. Today we're continuing in our series on the Gospel of John, and as we seek to understand Jesus, John's book describes him as the true light that brings life. And as we've been learning over the last few weeks, John uses simple contrasts, light and darkness, truth and lies, belief and unbelief, in ways that are layered and interdependent. These are things that, are, that we contend with in our small passage this morning. And if you were with us last week, We were invited to marvel at God, specifically at the Word, who was both with God and, in fact, God himself. Since before the beginning, he was the one who made all things and still sustains them by the power of his Word. His light shines and cannot be dampened or extinguished. John treats us to a description of Jesus that's so big that we feel like we need to step back in order to take it all in. Behold, the transcendent star breather who exists outside of our concept of time and who spoke all that we know into being. But while riffing on the sheer magnitude of God, John zooms into a specific point in time and even to a specific person, 
drawing our attention to the messenger who brings good news about who he is. In himself, he is the good news. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. We'll be camping out in verse, verses 6 through 13 today. Read along with me here. John 1, 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about that light. Here we're introduced to John the Baptist, who's different than John the Apostle, who is the author of the Gospel of John. And interestingly enough, we aren't given the details about his baptizing here. Many scholars speculate that this is because the author wants us to focus not on John's ministry of baptism, but on his role as the messenger, the forerunner who grabs your attention and points us towards Jesus, the one that we've been waiting for. Extra, extra, read all about it. The word made flesh and dwells among us. His job is to get you not to miss that the light has come. The Messiah, the promised one, at last has arrived. See him, listen to him, worship him, walk in his ways. Be like, extra, extra, read all about it. The word made flesh and dwells among us. His job is to get you not to miss that the light has come. The Messiah, the promised one, has arrived at last. See him, listen to him, worship him, follow him and walk in his ways. John has been sent from God. His is not a self-appointed role. He was born for this task to not let people miss Jesus. He's not the first one to tell of the Messiah's coming, but he is granted that unique privilege to point men and women who are shrouded in darkness to a living and breathing Christ who walks among them and talks with them. God's people since before John came on the scene longed for the promised Messiah who would come. The prophets of Israel spoke of God's Messiah who would come and right the wrongs. The psalmist yearned for the rescue and salvation that accompanied God's presence in his reign. In his Bible background commentary, Andreas Kostenberger highlights a few of those moments in Scripture that speak about the life-giving light which will one day dawn. Let's look at those. Isaiah 9-2 talks about a light that shines in the darkness. Malachi 4-2, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And then spoken by Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness. John the messenger was entering into this deep tradition. His job was to get everyone's attention and to tell them that this was the moment Jesus had arrived. And when that moment came, he didn't miss it. Listen to John's own words later in in chapter 1. John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John 1.34, I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The witness calls for all to hear and believe that the true light that brings light to the darkness has arrived. And the Gospel of John is threaded throughout with the clear message that Jesus is the promised Son of God. We looked at it at the beginning when we did the introduction of this book, that John gives us his thesis, his purpose statement, why he wrote it all. John 20, 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John had the privilege to be the first messenger when Jesus came onto the scene, but he wasn't the final witness of the redemption of Jesus. Think of those who came after him. The apostles, those gathered in the upper room in Acts, the first Gentile converts, they all served as messengers of the gospel of Jesus to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and ultimately to the ends of the earth. These men and women aren't in in fact themselves the light, but they are vessels that the light emanates from as Christ shines from within them through the Spirit's presence and work. In the sermon on John chapter 1, Augustine compared John the messenger and those who would come after him to a simple lamp. They didn't have LEDs back then. We're talking oil lamps. See, the lamp itself does not have the light, but it serves as a vessel to carry the flame that, that comes with the lamp. And the beautiful aspect of thinking about the messengers as an oil lamp is that the flame can be shared from lamp to lamp. And as the flame multiplies, it brings light to more and more of a dark world. Picture it with me. In just a few months, we're going to be celebrating Christmas Eve. We roll with a candlelight service. And we love it. As the service closes, the lights will dim. And a beautiful carol will be sung. And then someone will dim the lights and light the first candle. Will they pull a zippo out of their pocket? No. They'll go to the Christ candle, which sits at the center of the Advent wreath, that which represents the dawning of Christ's light into the dark world, and they'll light it. And then what happens in that dark room? Person by person, candle by candle, that flame transfers. And more and more of the light passes through the room, representing the light of Christ being transferred throughout the world. And then we get all those Christmas feels, right? Have you guys ever been somewhere truly dark? Really dark. I think I can safely say the darkest place that I have been is the Ape Caves at the foot of St. Helens in Washington State. Anybody been there? I heard a, I heard a woo. Okay, all right. We got some explorers, spurlunkers. If you haven't been, there are these gnarly tubes that are over... At 2.5 miles in length, and they were formed a long time ago when lava flowed down and, and to volcanic rock like streams. And thankfully, at least the lava on the surface is cooled. But they've left these hikeable tube cave thingies that are begging for exploration. And a few years back, I headed into the ape caves with some friends and a flashlight that I had double checked the batteries on, and we began to descend into the earth. And two things became abundantly clear immediately. One, caves are cold. Even in the summer, bring a sweatshirt. And two, caves are dark. Like, really dark. At first, when we came into the caves, the sunlight from the mouth of the cave provided a little bit of summer warmth and light to get our bearings. But as we hiked in a few hundred yards and took the first turn, we had to turn the headlamps on. And we spent several hours exploring the dark recesses of those beautiful and mysterious caves. No sign of Smeagol. And when my friends and I came to the end of the cave, we found ourselves alone. 
And then one of us got the great idea. Let's turn off the light. And let's see how long we can stand it. And so we did. We decided to cut the lights. And we stood in the dark. In silence. It was the weirdest experience. Once the walls of the cave were no longer illuminated by our LED lights, it was pitch black. There was literally no light. And we couldn't make sense of our surroundings. I kept opening and closing my eyelids. And it was actually darker when I, or when I, or it was, it was lighter when I closed my eyes because you get that little sparkly thing that happens, right? And I'd wiggle my fingertips in front of my face and I could feel the wind, but I couldn't see them. It was disorienting. And it was creepy in a way that was like hard to describe. Thanks to the friends that I was with, the silence didn't last long and it was abruptly ended by someone making a Sasquatch noise and blinking the lights in our eyes. <laughs> Very mature. It was like four years ago. But my experience in the ape caves was interesting for a number of reasons, but it was instructive in thinking about the relationship between light and darkness. First off, I prefer light to darkness when in caves. And second, at the risk of redundancy, light is illuminating. My flashlight didn't change anything physically in the surrounding cave apart from bringing light. And with that light came clarity because I was able to accurately see what was around me. I was able to intentionally move around and interact with my surroundings. I was able to appreciate the cave walls complete with rock formations and unintelligible fungi. I was able to avoid pits and puddles and debris as I hiked. The light made me feel safe, and it allowed me to appreciate the experience rather than simply grasping blindly at the cave walls in the dark. As John uses this word light throughout the gospel, it is contrasted with the darkness. He declares that Jesus is the light that has come into the world, John 3.19. Apart from the light Jesus of Jesus, men and women are left to stumble around in the darkness, John 11.9, not knowing where they walk, John 12.35. The light Jesus brings is an illuminating light which sheds light upon the world and our lives and brings definition even to the shadowed places. And what John tells us about this light in the world and our response to it is three things. Number one, it cannot understand or grasp the light. It did not know Jesus, the light bringer. And finally, it did not receive Jesus, the light bringer. Think about those three words that are underlined. What a heartbreaking set of verbs that describes the world's relationships with the one who created us and sustains us. This doesn't describe all of creation because the psalmist is quick to remind us that all of creation praises God. Psalm 19, 1 through 4, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Jesus declared that if he didn't receive praise from mankind, that the very rocks and stones would cry out. The word that John uses for the world describes humanity. And that's the brutally ironic part 
is that those who have been made in the image of God, you and I, that have been given voices to praise God, an intellect above everything else in creation, over and over again, choose not to know God, choose not to receive God. John 1.10, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. In caves, I might prefer light, but according to John, I prefer darkness. Christ brings revelation through his light by exposing, not exploding, exposing the shadows of our lives to the light of the gospel. We respond to light often as if we're in a dark room, right? And the light overexposes our film. But the difference is, there's no film to be had. Our sin is what is exposed. That's why it's uncomfortable. We don't like light being shined in our business. Jesus told us as much in chapter 3 of John's Gospel, which we'll study later. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Light isn't the enemy. It exposes how things truly are, showing our deeds either for good or for ill. The light shines indiscriminately on everyone whether we're aware of it or not. And often in John's gospel, we are invited to see that the light brings distinction. How do I respond to the light that Jesus brings? When the light breaks through the curtains of my life in the midday sun, do I pull back the shame or the shades? Freudian slip. Or do I see the unredeemed bits and pieces that the light has exposed and do I grieve with God? over my sin, and do I seek to walk with him in the light? If we agree with him on what sin is, what wholeness is, where peace and rest can be found, then the exposing light of Jesus is not threatening, but in fact a grace. It is the light of Christ that allows us to see ourselves and our world as it is. Can you and I become people that don't bristle when the light shines? Can we grow in our ability to confront lies and deception with the light of the gospel? We hide ourselves from the light, not only because it's uncomfortable, because it doesn't fit within our framework. We can't accept the reality that God's light exposes because, if we're honest, we believe at some level that we have the cure for what ails us inside ourselves. Theologian Gary Burge offers this caution to us as we're tempted to think such things. It's our one long quote. Hang with me on it. It is naive to think that the world is eagerly awaiting from some disclosure from heaven. Such a disclosure is welcome if it comes in the world's terms. If it is a message that affirms the systems of the world, upholding the personal aggrandizement of power and the prowess of human capacity. But if it names the darkness for what it is, if it describes sin for what it does, if it identifies unbelief in its many sophisticated forms, then the world will experience sheer antagonism. 
If the creator of the world now calls for the dominion as its creator and Lord, the world will have no part. Christian theology affirms that humanity is in a state from which there is no freedom. Sin is not a series of bad choices, but a state of being from which bad choices continually come. This means that humanity's moral, intellectual, even aesthetic capacities are fallen and poised to move away from the presence of the light. It's not like we're doing well and we just need something to take us over the top. We, in our fallen state, buck against the light. Scriptures teach that salvation must, in fact, come from outside of us. That's hard for us to hear. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. As a musician, I find that songwriters often serve as poets and philosophers of our day. And back in high school, um, I really enjoyed listening to a song, a band called Pedro the Lion, and the song, uh, Letter from a Concerned Follower. The song picks at this cultural idea that the views and convictions that Christian holds about God are somehow antiquated or naive when compared to our own modern sensibilities. And so it could be easy to just redo the lyrics, but there'd be no fun in that. And so uh, I thought I'd, I'd sing it for you and uh, allow the lyrics to get in through the back door. Yeah. 
just a little bit worried. Do you have some sort of plan? Have you been finally defeated by the sentiments in that song familiar? Do you hear them today? Maybe from others or for honest maybe in our own heads. As we struggle do we begin to wonder if there's some other place for light, some other place for hope to be found? Maybe in us? Maybe in someone or something else? It's our hope at this church that in this body of believers, that you're in your home community and in the relationships that are formed here, that this will be a place to bring your questions and grief and fears. The Psalms give us an incredible template for crying out to God and giving voice to our pain and our longings and even our questions. And in the Psalms, we're invited to see that our questions and our frustrations are welcome. In conversations with the Holy One. He listens to our pain and he's big enough to handle it. But we must allow our questions to drive us toward the light of God where the clarity is rather than back to feeling around, groping blindly in the darkness. The thought that hope can be found from within ourselves is a thought that is prevalent certainly in the world, but it is also amongst the people of God. Back to our passage, John 1.11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Just going to let that sit there a minute so that it can break our hearts. The world didn't know the light of Jesus, but those who knew to wait for the dawning of the light didn't receive Jesus when he stood in their midst. Jesus came to those who were called his treasured possession. To the men and women that he considered like home, and he wasn't welcomed in. Note the change in wording. The world at large didn't know Jesus. His own people didn't receive Jesus. With increased knowledge and greater relationship comes accountability. When Jesus is talking with the religious leaders in John chapter 9, he rebukes them. 
Because, because although they have sight, it is like they have become blind. They knew to look for the promised Messiah so that they could welcome him in. And yet they rejected him because he didn't fit in their system. In that way, both the world and the religious suffered from the same issue. They both created a means for hope and light apart from the one true light. Do we do this? Can we be described as stiff-necked people? Were Jesus in our midst this morning, would he in fact be the object of our worship? Or might it be us? For those who've responded in faith to the light of Jesus, perhaps maybe even long ago, are we actively still following him? Or do our actions say something different? Thanks, Jesus. I'll take it from here. Does my life show that I have truly received Jesus and I continue to abide in him, or have I set him aside now that I've found something that just works better? Have I moved on to a new truth after finding the company of his life a little too revealing? Do I avoid the light in favor of life in the shadows? As we think of those things, it's important to note that not everyone rejected the light of Christ. Some received him. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Christ, the living word, who brings life and light, has made a way for us to be what? Born of God. The word who in the beginning said, let there be light, once again brings light into the world. But instead of bringing about the stars or the sun, he brought himself, the true light, into the world. And with him, he brings the offer to now participate in the true life that he alone brings. And those who receive him know that his light is not the enemy. But the light is instead the revelation that allows us to fully understand ourselves, our world, and ultimately God himself responding in worship. Throughout the story of God's people, God has revealed himself through the world he created, through his word and the prophets. But in Jesus, the, word is given the, full, the world is given the full revelation of who God is. I'm not going to try it saying better than Hebrews chapter 1. I'm just going to read it. Long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the one that we are offered kinship through. What will you do with Jesus? Do you know him? Have you received him? Do you believe in Jesus? To those who welcome Jesus, to those that believe that he is our hope, we are given kinship in the family of God. And it's not a result of the birth family that you come from. It doesn't matter if you're 
Jewish, it doesn't matter if you're a Gentile, it doesn't matter if you're a lifelong Portlander, or even if you're from California. Right? It's not a result of your own good works. It's not about developing a system or a resume that somehow makes you now acceptable before God. Everything rests on your reception or denial of the light of life. And so this morning we're considering two things that John asks us to consider. Who is Jesus? John, the messenger, proclaimed salvation for those who believed. Remember, John's gospel was written so that you would believe and that in believing you would have life. In just a few minutes, we're going to celebrate communion together. There will be pastors and there will be other leaders from the church in the back who are going to be available to talk to you. We'd love to add our voice to the chorus of witnesses about Jesus. We love talking about him and the hope that he brings. And we'll be back there to talk if you'd like that. John was sent to serve as a witness, but he wouldn't be the last. After John, both men and women individually and in groups began testifying of Jesus, of his coming, his work, and ultimately his resurrection. Those who had experienced the light and who had seen what it exposed couldn't help but share the good news with others. In his final conversation with his disciples in the book of Acts, just before Jesus returns to heaven, He invites them to see a new future, a future where they will serve as his witnesses, fueled by the Spirit of God, transmitting the news that hope has come. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And as others receive Jesus, responding in belief to Jesus, they in turn became new witnesses who carried the flame themselves. And it's because of those people and because of those witnesses that the testimony of of the Messiah has come through space and time and is here with us today. So what will you do with the testimony that you've been given to steward? If you have responded in faith to Jesus, will you carry the flame? If you have responded in genuine belief, then you have the consuming flame of God inside your bones. And you are the lamp. Where will you carry the flame? As we shine, we don't shine for our own selves, our own acclaim, our own brand, but we allow the light of Christ to shine in us. 2 Corinthians 4, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, who ourselves with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let the light shine out of the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Listen to this last bit. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this passing power belongs to God and not to us. Look at me. Literally. If we're honest, there's nothing particularly spectacular about me. Maybe a sturdy earthen vessel, right? But what lives inside of me is a different story entirely. I have been called to serve as his witness in the place that he has me. 
to share the treasure that I've been given in the Foster Powell neighborhood that I live in, in the Montevilla community in which I work, and in the family and friendships and relationships that I get to enjoy. Where's that place for you? We carry in our lamp as believers the flame powered and fueled by the work of the Holy Spirit. We live in a world that either doesn't know or hasn't yet received the light. And yet, as those who've received the light, we carry his illuminating light with us because we have been made new. Not of flesh, not of choice, but as sons and daughters of God. And as being, as those who've been made new, we can't help but bring that news with us. If you have a hard time with that, remember what it was like to stumble around in the darkness, to grope at the cave walls. Would we together, as his messengers, bring the clarifying light of the gospel into dark places? Because the light has come. Amen? Pray with me. Lord Jesus, Help us to see you as you truly are. Help us to see our sin for what it is. Help us to receive the gospel and to revel in its fruit. Help us to carry the fire with genuine hope that all may know you and believe. Not for our glory, Jesus, but for your glory and your renown, we pray. Amen. Each week, at the close of the sermon, our worship culminates at the table. It's an opportunity to celebrate the Lord's death and his resurrection until he comes again. And if you've received Jesus, if you believe in him and abide in him, the table is set for you. And the juice and the bread, which represent his body broken and his blood shed, which, by the way, he offered joyfully as he endured the cross. Let's go to the table. Eyes wide open of what we have been saved from and we, what we have also been saved towards. As I mentioned, there'll be some of us in the back. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to pray for you. We would love to talk together about this life-giving hope that is found in Jesus. Let's stand together as we respond to Jesus, who is the light. We desire to be formed by the word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.